16 last time. Kind of the closing thought of the 115th was maybe encapsulated from 12 down where it says the eternal has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. And that's pretty much the theme of this fifth section of the Psalms is God's restoration to Israel, his blessing to his people, uh, and speaking spiritually to his spiritual Jews first, obviously. Verse 13, He will bless them that fear the Eternal, both small and great. The Eternal shall increase you more and more, you and your children. So he's making some promises here of what he plans to do with his people. So no matter how grim sometimes things might seem to us and how long uh, this situation and this world goes on, we know that God is very aware that he knows what he's doing and he promises to take care of us in the long run one way or another. Uh, we can't become weary and well-doing. We have to push on convincing ourselves really that God's way is the best way. Uh, sometimes we as human beings look at it that, well, I can, I can be good this long. <laughs> and beyond that, I'm not sure I can be good because our nature is always there. We always have to battle with it, and it's difficult. But his law converts the soul so that it no longer agitates against God's way, but accepts it fully. And that's something that I don't know that any human being other than Christ himself ever fully accomplished that, because we all have our difficulties but God said, I am going to see this through, I'm going to turn it around, and you will be blessed, you and your children. You are blessed of the Eternal which made heaven and earth. So he underlines it by saying, I make this promise, and I can make it because I'm the one that made heaven and earth, okay? His word will stand fast. They belong to him, but he's given the earth to men, he says in the next verse. Then he says in 17, The dead praise not the eternal, neither any that go down into silence. After we're dead, we can't praise God anymore. We can't worship him. We can't overcome. We can't do anything. The dead know nothing. So that means, so as long as we are above the earth and not in it, we need to use the time to great advantage to serve God. But we will bless the eternal from this time forth and forevermore. Uh, the psalmist understood there is eternal life, not just now, but there might be an interim period of death physically, but it's forevermore because of eternity. So into 116 then, with that review and background, he says, I love the eternal. Because he has heard my voice and my supplications. Now sometimes we may lose track of that a little bit day to day because our immediate prayers for that day might not be answered in quite the way we would want or we don't get a solution to a difficulty we might be having that day. And we do live kind of day to day, don't we? Uh, dealing with life as it comes. But if you back off and look at it, has not God heard our prayers and our supplications? 
We were in a church that was falling apart. We were ourselves Laodicean in our approach in every way. God was unhappy with it and blew it apart. And we were grasping, seeking, trying to find. And by and large, most still have not found what God is doing and why he's doing it the way he's doing it. But in searching these scriptures out, we understand that. So a lot of confusion and frustration is removed simply by recognizing that God has blessed us with a great deal of information that most people simply don't have. He heard the cries and the supplication. In some cases, maybe we were just oblivious in some respects to what was going on, and God opened our mind anyway. What a blessing that is, that He would find you or me, weak and base as we are, and say, I want to show that one what I'm doing and why. What an incredible blessing that is. Because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore will I call upon him as long as I live. We don't know how long that will be. Someone was telling me just before the service, they, in coming home, had encountered a car crash on the highway with three vehicles. You couldn't even identify what they were. And I guess everybody there probably was killed. We don't know. It can happen in an instant. So as long as we live, we'll call on God because He has heard. And we began to seek Him at some point in life. And He's shown us the truth. The sorrows of death compassed me, and the pains of hell, or the grave, got hold upon me. I found trouble and sorrow. So even in this section where he begins to show that he will bless us, that he will uh, respond and turn his face to us, we rehearse somewhat at least basically the human experience. We're thankful that God has shown us our purpose on earth, why we're here. There are nearly seven billion people on the face of this earth that don't know where they came from or where they're going, or any clue as to who the true God is and what His purpose for human beings is. There are only a few ten thousands on the face of the earth who even begin to understand the plan of God. That's incredible when you think about it. But what has been the human experience? Same as in David's life and the rest of mankind's experience, essentially. We find trouble, we make difficulties, we bring misery and suffering upon ourselves in various and sundry ways. We make mistakes, we mismanage, we misuse, we abuse, we do all kinds of things wrong in this earth, and we suffer for it. You can... Go to the television and flip through hundreds of channels, I suppose, and you have so many self-help or doctors or lawyers or whoever trying to explain to people how to solve their problems. And you know what? They get people on there, just, there's a never-ending supply 
of people with traumas and problems and difficulties in their lives. Never-ending supply. If you want to perpetuate a program, get one that deals in misery. And you'll have all kinds of people lined up to deal with it. That's just the way it is. <clears throat> the sorrows of death compassed me, and the pains of the grave got hold on us. And we're increasingly sick and dying. We're already in uh, at least the first stages of the famine and pestilence in the, the diseases of Egypt that have come upon our people. One-third are expected to die of cancer, one-third of heart disease, and one-third of diabetes or other things. You've got a plague on your hands. And that's where we are today. So we've managed to work ourselves into all kinds of problems, have we not? Then called I upon the name of the Eternal... Well, we get ourselves into trouble, and then we know what to do. At least, we do. Most people do not. They don't know God. They don't know how to call upon Him. They don't know how to deal with Him. They don't even know He really even exists. How privileged, how blessed we are. I called upon the name of the Eternal. O Eternal, I beseech you, deliver my soul. And this is where we find ourselves today. We've read all those promises through all the prophecies, through all the Bible, about the blessings God is going to bring upon His end-time latter temple. We know they're there. We know they're coming. But sometimes it seems like this is taking forever. We heard that in the sermonette, and it expresses feelings I've had lately. You know, it just... It just becomes difficult to wait. We as human beings are not patient by nature. So we hope and we hope and hope deferred makes the heart sick. So then we keep hoping. We know it's coming, but it's the waiting that is difficult. And we need to use the waiting period to get ourselves spiritually in the condition we need to be in. That's, that's where we are. So he called upon the name of the Eternal, please deliver me. And he's told us, as I've said many times, not to give him any rest, but to bug him constantly and daily until he does these things. He tells us that there in Isaiah. Don't give him any rest, but stay after him. Because the prayer and the cry and the hurt of his people, he can't... Abide, but only so long. Because by nature he is compassionate, he is merciful, he is kind, he is gentle, he is loving. That's what he is. God is love. So, if those who are trying their best to love him are hurting and frustrated and miserable and having difficulties, and they cry out to him... It tears at his heart. And he says, I want you to tear at my heart until I can't stand it anymore. He doesn't like a lot of the things that there are about us, okay? But he has such a great capacity for mercy and forgiveness that he can only turn from us so long 
until the very nature, what he is, compels him to show mercy and forgiveness and favor. We need to make it as easy for him as we can. And not let up on him until he does. God said he will never give up on us. There in Romans it says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. It is only we who can separate ourselves from him. That is the only danger really that we face. So we cry out, deliver my soul. Gracious is the eternal and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. So we cry out when we've gotten ourselves into all kinds of trouble and we depend upon his graciousness and his mercy. The eternal preserves the simple. That would be us. We're, in many respects, simple. Now, all human life is complicated in many respects. We, we are complicated beings, and yet, on the other hand, it's really pretty simple when you boil it down. And we are not those that are in high finance. We're not those in big business. We're not those who make the complicated world work for them. We're the simple. We're the workers. We're the wage earners. Not the mighty and the noble by any means. But God's preserving us. And it's His purpose to preserve that kind of people. To show His glory in the long run. <clears throat> I was brought low, and He helped me. Well, He has to bring us low. And then we turn, and He will help us. Then there's a plea again. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Eternal has dealt bountifully with you. So he's talking to himself here. You know, I don't want to forget these things that God has done for me. I want to remember them. I want to call upon him. So I need to talk to myself here a little bit and tell myself to get back into that place where I'm being trusting and patient and loving toward God and serving him the very best I can because that's the only place I find rest. That's the only place that things work the best. <clears throat> and he has dealt bountifully with us, hasn't he? He's blessed us with truth and life and opportunity and brought us here to do a job for him. What a blessing. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. If we were out here like the rest of the world, we would have no hope. Now, our hope seems in some ways hard to grasp now because time has gone on and these things have not happened, maybe when we would want. But at the same time, God has held us up and our feet haven't felt fallen. In that case, since they haven't, he says, I will walk before the eternal in the land of the living. I'll pick myself up and I will walk forward. I will not sit down where my feet might have dropped me. God has allowed us to live. 
He's allowed us to be here. So we walk before him in the land of the living. We don't give up. We're not the walking dead, in other words. We're just going through the motions, going through life, hoping we make it through until what? I guess till Christ returns and everything turns out right. No, he tells us this is a positive thing we have to do, is live and be alive. Be enthusiastic to not give up on life. I believed, therefore have I spoken. He said, these are things that I've thought about, I believed and do believe, and I want to speak it. I want others to hear it. I was greatly afflicted. Now, could this be written from a great deal of experience if David wrote this particular psalm or if someone else wrote it? They had had many experiences. But look at all the things that David had gone through. Trials, troubles, tribulations in his life. His own children trying to kill him. Many other enemies in his kingdom trying to kill him and get rid of him. His first son through Bathsheba died. God blessed him through her later on with Solomon and others. But he had been through a great deal of up and down in his life. Faced all kinds of difficulties. You know, how many of you have had your own children openly, outwardly trying to kill you? That's, that would be pretty traumatic. So when he said, I was afflicted, he's not just talking through his hat. I said in my haste, verse 11, all men are liars. You know, when you've gone through as much lying as happened in David's kingdom... You never knew who was telling the truth and who was lying. You never knew who to trust and who not to trust. And eventually, after so many death threats and so many attempts at coup d'etats or whatever, you would get to the point you didn't trust anybody. And that is an awful feeling to have, I would suppose, where you felt like anyone that you saw was an enemy that could betray you, hurt you, put you down, and destroy you. What a feeling to live with. So there's an awful lot of emotion in what is being written here. There's an awful lot of experience in this. Something we can learn from. You just come to the conclusion that all men are liars. You can't trust anybody. Well, the Bible says you can't trust now, we should, as we grow together and learn and live together, learn to be able to trust each other to a some degree, shouldn't we? To believe each other when we say we will do this or we'll do that or won't do this or won't do that. Can we come to have some level of trust through God's Spirit, through God's way, that simply doesn't exist out on the street somewhere? I think that we should. But even then, because of experience, we're careful, we're cautious. We don't want to lay too much out there. We hide a certain amount of ourselves from each other. 
because we've learned to be cynical and not trust much out in this world. So now it's time for those barriers to go away and live together as a family that can live at least somewhat in trust. David trusted Jonathan probably as much as anyone, but who else? Oh, he, just, he just didn't have anywhere he could turn. Who can I believe? be a terrible place to be. What shall I render to the Eternal for all His benefits toward me? He says, I'm just counting the fact that I can trust in God. God will do for me. What can I do to thank God for all the benefits that I have? Well, he gives us some insight then in verse 13. I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Eternal. Now that is the number one biggest thing, I would say, that we can do right there is take, drink of the cup of salvation. What is this all about? It's to save us from sin and death. This whole human experience is for that purpose. I want to get to it a little later today, I think and point out a scripture or two on that. But the groundwork is being laid right here. What does God most want of us? He wants us to be in His kingdom and live forever. That's what this is all about. That's what we're struggling to become and to do. This whole human experience is toward that end. So if He says, what can I do to thank God... For the benefits he's given me, it would be to drink deeply of the cup of salvation. To do all I can to fulfill his purpose in me. What greater thing could we do to honor God than to succeed at what he put us here for? I will pay my vows to the eternal, now in the presence of all his people. He says, my life may have gone here, there, somewhere else. It may have gotten off track with this, whatever. But I'm going to begin to truly pay those vows that I made to God. Now, prior to baptism and at baptism, we vowed before God to turn our lives over to Him as a living sacrifice, as slaves to Him to do His bidding, His will, and His purpose in everything that we do in life, in one form or another. That's what we did. And we have failed, every one of us, in keeping those vows in the way that we made them and what we intended and he intended when they were made. David had done the same thing. He had made all kinds of mistakes in his life. But he said, I will pay those vows. And even in his prayer there in Psalm 51... He said he would proclaim those things to the great congregation. That's what he's doing right here, is proclaiming it. Verse 15, precious in the sight of the eternal is the death of his saints. Now, in a way, that's a strange statement, isn't it? We don't look at death in the same way that God does, do we? We fear death. We don't want to go there. 
We're afraid if we die too soon, we won't make it into the kingdom of God because we're not ready yet. And I don't know that any of us feel ready. And if we do, we're obviously not ready because then we're self-righteous, vain, and proud. Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner, if we're in the right attitude. Now, why is the death of his saints precious in his sight? When somebody dies, we don't say, well, that's precious, <laughs> do we? No. We sorrow, we mourn, we're frustrated by it. But God has a different view. He sees death physically as a very temporary thing. It's pretty final to us in many ways. And that loved one or friend or whatever is just gone for the rest of this life. So when somebody dies, we don't feel precious about it. But God does. Now, He's different than us. He has different viewpoints. If you have served God through this life, and you have reached that point where He's ready and willing when Christ returns to change you in a moment in the twinkling of an eye into a spirit being and live eternally and immortally forevermore in peace, happiness, security within His kingdom, and you die, and that is accomplished, finished, done, and you're lying there waiting for the resurrection, and He knows that's where you're going to be because He makes that judgment based on this life. And in spite of our mistakes and so on, we've tried and worked and tried, and He says, I'm going to forgive the rest in the blood of My Son. That one's going to make it. Yeah! They died in the faith. That is precious to him. If they die out of the faith, that wouldn't be so precious. If he knows that someone has rebelled to the point that they're going to have to go into the lake of fire, that death would not be precious. That would be very sad to God. Because he's a father and he loves all his kids. No matter who they are and what they've done. That's why he has a plan that stretches out through the millennium and the great white throne judgment to bring most of those people into his kingdom. But there will be some weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't think a great deal of it because God is going to be successful at what he does. It will be the few, not the many, when it's all said and done. But from that standpoint... If in his judgment, and that's the only one that counts, you'll be in the first resurrection, that's precious to him. So that's his viewpoint as opposed to ours. Verse 16, O eternal, truly, I am your servant. I am your servant and the son of your handmaid. You have loosed my bonds. So that's part of the vow there that he had made. I'm your child. I belong to you. And you're the one, only one that can loose my troubles, my bonds. What does sin do? It puts us into bondage. It puts us in fear of death and destruction. And only going to God and asking for, for forgiveness and mercy and the blood of Christ on us can loose us from that bond. Otherwise, we are under the bondage of death. I 
I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Eternal. Now, do you think that David, when he prayed his prayer of repentance in Psalm 51, felt bound, felt troubled? Read it. Felt discouraged and frustrated with himself and the sins that he had perpetrated and all that he had done? Yeah, that was a heavy bond, a weight on his shoulders and his head. And God had loosed those. He didn't kill him. He allowed or caused the first son to die. And when the child died, David said that's the answer to that prayer. God said no. And got up and ate and drank. Everybody expected him to weep and wail and tear his clothes and sackcloth and ashes. No, he fasted until he got an answer from God. The answer from God was no, that child's dying. Okay, I'll get up and move on. But God allowed him to live. He died a natural death at age 70 in his own bed. God had loosed those heavy bonds that he had brought upon himself. So he could be thankful. I will offer you to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the eternal. Thanksgiving to God in some ways is a sacrifice. It takes from our time. It gets into our emotional lives. We have to work at having the right emotions so that we can give thanks to God. Because so often the human state is unthankfulness, depression, frustration, selfishness, you name it, the works of the flesh. Those are our natural emotions, negativity. So you have to work at or sacrifice how your mind might normally work and get it to work in the thanksgiving mode. So you have to sacrifice time, energy, prayer, meditation, Bible study, or whatever to get in a thankful mood so that you can give thanksgiving. Sometimes you're just ebullient with happiness, joy, and life, and you do feel thankful to God. But that isn't always, is it? That isn't always at all. We can get inward and selfish and frustrated and then we're not thankful. So it is a sacrifice to work at the right attitude, the right mood, the right emotion. doesn't come easy always. Again, a repeat in verse 18, I will pay my vows to the Eternal, now in the presence of all His people. He thought it through, he had determined, recommitted, I am going to make sure to the things I've told God I will do, I will do, and I'll do it right out in front of everybody. Now, he went through a lot of embarrassment in his life as well because of some of the things he had done. So it might have been very difficult for him to come and proclaim God in a positive, wonderful way to everybody else when they knew a lot of the things that he had done. That's one of the reasons so many of them were after him to kill him. With, well, they had their own greed for power and all those other things that go with kingdoms as well. But he put aside his personal feelings, frustrations, 
and said, I will declare this in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the Eternal's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem, praise you the Eternal. So he felt thankful and freed from the bonds that his own life had caused him to have and was ready to put forth praise to God. That's something we all have to do. Put aside those hurts, those problems, those difficulties, those mistakes, whatever we've done in life. Set them aside. Don't let them pull us down. Don't let them keep us in bondage to the point we're frustrated and miserable and carrying a trailer behind us of all our woes. But set it aside and praise the Eternal. Psalm 117 is quite short. O praise the Eternal, all you nations. Praise Him, all you people. So he's given us insight there into some of the difficulties in his life and what he did about them, how he handled them, and what he ultimately had to do before God. And then the next psalm is praise the Eternal. Because he was seeing him through these difficulties. And he will see us through. That's why it's written for us. is because not only did God see him and others through in the past, he's going to see us through too. So this is an end time prophecy. It's been a prophecy all since it was written for whoever read it. And therefore it is there for us who read it today. And we're the last round. So... Praise the Eternal, all you nations. Praise Him, all you people. For His merciful kindness is great toward us. And the truth of the Eternal endures forever. Praise you, the Eternal. He has not chosen to wipe us all out, (coughs) as He has done in some cases in the past. However, He is going to have to wipe out most of mankind here at the end to get their attention. To get them to come to have the attitude with which Psalm 117 was written. You don't get this naturally. You don't get it normally. You can only get it if God calls you, knocks you down, brings you to repentance, gives you His Spirit, and you learn His truth, and you painstakingly, day by day, year by year, learn to trust God and to depend upon His mercy that does endure forever. But most people don't get it. Most people can't get it. And the vast majority will not get it until they come up in a physical resurrection and shake the clods out of their hair and say, Wow. Now I think I'll listen. You have this opportunity now. We have been blessed way beyond. And you know what? It's going to be easier for those people then, too. You know that? When they come up in the second resurrection, and there's peace on earth, and has been for a thousand years except for a little rebellion at the end that is put down quickly. When they come up, they're going to see a beautiful new world. And there won't be any of the problems that we see around us today. 
And they will have been humbled through death. So for them to accept God's way and to serve Him is going to be much, much easier than it is for you and me. Poor us. But you know what? We get a much greater reward. Much greater reward for going through it, dealing with it, and accomplishing it now. We get a higher standing in the kingdom, the very bride of Christ. How could you do better than that? And to live and reign with Him forevermore. And all those people that we feel sorry for and see suffering around us now and are going to witness die such horrible deaths in the next few years, we will be their teachers. We will be the ones to answer their prayers, the ones to help them, to strengthen them, to guide them and lead them, to have happy, meaningful lives and families. So we're blessed above them to be able to be there. 118, O give thanks to the Eternal, for He is good, because His mercy endures forever. That is said a lot through the Psalms. And it was said by someone who had been extended an awful lot of mercy. And if you've been given that much mercy, you tend to be more merciful. Because you understand. And that's why Christ was able and is able to be merciful to us when He goes to the Father and says, You know, I went through that. Let's show some mercy here. And the Father says, You're right. I watched you go through that. And it wasn't pleasant. Let Israel now say that His mercy endures forever. Christ could say it. What he went through and his sins, or our sins dropped on his back and the weight of that and how God showed mercy to him in spite of our sins and resurrected him. And now Israel can say it as well. Israel has not been destroyed. Spiritual Israel has not been destroyed. The former temple has been destroyed before our very eyes. But the church of God is not destroyed. There are still faithful Diligent people around the world, some on their own couches alone, some in different organizations, who still are seeking to serve God. And He will soon gather them together to build the latter temple. They're still there. His mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say that His mercy endures forever. The Levites themselves, the ministry, because we in the ministry, modernly, all deserve to die. We all deserve to be wiped out. We misused and abused the people. Sad, but true. Ezekiel 34, Jeremiah 23, and Malachi 1 were written to the modern day ministry above all. Including me, for sure. Let them now that fear the eternal say that his mercy endures forever. So all categories, Israel, Levi, and anyone who fears the eternal. I called upon the eternal in distress. We don't usually call upon him too much until we are in distress, do we? 
It's when we're in trouble in one form or another that we call out. The Eternal answered me and set me in a large place. A peaceful place, a large place, a blessed place is what that means. The Eternal is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So he says, I think they're all liars. I think they're all trying to kill me. I think they all have nefarious reasons for what they do. But I can trust God. That I can do. What can man do to us? Oh, they might kill us. Well, big deal. Didn't Christ say, don't fear him, which is able to kill the body, but he who is able to kill body and soul? They can only kill the body. And they have in the past killed many of God's people and will kill a bunch more. Guaranteed. Shows it in Daniel 11 and other places. They'll think they do God's service by killing us, Matthew 24 and other places. And some of us they will kill. I have no doubt of that. Big deal. God can resurrect. That's a simple solution. The Eternal takes my part with them that help me. So if other people try to help, God is going to bless them for it, he says. Therefore shall I see my desire upon them that hate me. So he says, between God and the few friends I do have, I'm going to make it, and this is all going to work out okay, and they are not going to do well. Verse 8, it is better to put trust in the eternal than to put confidence in man. Now this thought in verse 8 is repeated in verse 9. And I find that interesting in that this is the middle verse or the middle two verses of the Bible. The same amount of verses before it, and the same amount of verses after it. Dead middle. So the thought is there, right in the middle of God's Word. It is better to trust in the eternal than to put confidence in man, and it is better to trust in the eternal than to put confidence in princes. Man or man's rulers, either one. Trust in God. And if you go either direction in the Bible from those two statements, right in the middle, you'll find the same message. <clears throat> Verse 10, All nations compass me about, but in the name of the Eternal will I destroy them. We are about to enter the period when all nations will compass God's people about and try to destroy them all. And Satan will have his focus entirely then upon those who would serve God. He's going to have the rest on his side. The beast and the false prophet, they'll all worship it. He's only going to have a few who worship the true God. And he will have his focus on destroying them. But you know who wins? We do. When they kill the two witnesses in the streets of Jerusalem... They're going to party on like, we won. This is it. We have the victory. Now we can go kill the rest of them and everything will be just fine. They'll send each other gifts, drink champagne, and toast their victory. And about three days later, they're going to say, oh no. Because God wins. 
and God's people win. And they'll see God's people rising from the earth to meet Christ in the heavens. And they're going to know that they've been had by Satan. It's not going to be a pleasant time. And then the seven last plagues are going to be poured upon the earth. And then there will be no doubt left at who's in charge. And it won't be the beast power or the false prophet who are going to be taken by the nap of the neck and thrown in the lake of fire. So they'll see their leaders destroyed the same way they destroyed the leaders of God's people. But those won't be resurrected. God's will. That's the difference. So, they'll compass us about, but in the end, we will have a hand in their destruction. They come back with Christ when he has the sword, riding with a vesture dipped in blood on the white horse, as Revelation says, and his saints will be coming with him at that time to take over the earth and put down any rebellion that is left. Now, are we going to win in the long run? Yes, we are. Yes, we will destroy them. This is a prophecy. It isn't just a bad attitude about people around us. It's a prophecy of things to come. They compass me about like bees. They are quenched as the fire of thorns. So they can swarm around us, try to kill us. But do you ever light fire to some dead brambles? goes through them pretty quickly. For in the name of the Eternal, I will destroy them. You have thrust sore at me that I might fall, but the Eternal helped me. The Eternal is my strength and song, and has become my salvation. So this whole thing winds up with salvation for us. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tabernacles of the righteous. In our houses will come rejoicing and happiness. The right hand of the Eternal does valiantly. The right hand of the Eternal is exalted. The right hand of the Eternal does valiantly. So his power, his right arm, will prevail. I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Eternal. Salvation, I said earlier, is what this is all about. But didn't, what, what did Christ come for? What was his purpose, really? It was to bring victory over death. There had been great disruption in the kingdom of God when Satan and the angels rebelled against God. And when he created Adam and Eve, the first thing they did was listen to Satan and sin and have the penalty of death over their head. Now, they died physically. I think they still will have a chance to be a part of the kingdom of God ultimately. They were deceived by Satan, just like the rest of the world is deceived. And God says that deception is what he has allowed so that he might save people in the end. There is nothing that says Adam and Eve are eternally lost anywhere in the Bible. They probably will be in the second resurrection and have an opportunity then to live God's way without Satan around. I think that would be God's judgment in that case. But maybe they can have victory over death. 1 Corinthians 15, I want to flip back there in just a moment. We read it more around Feast of Trumpets, but 
I think the application is, is good. He's talking of the resurrection here in a moment, the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. And he says in verse 55, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Emmanuel. Therefore, my beloved, my brethren, be you steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the eternal, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the eternal. All Paul is doing is rehearsing what we're reading right here in the Psalms. But this is about victory over death. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the eternal. Did he know he was going to die in this physical life? Yes. But he knew and understands or understood the plan of God and that he would be in the kingdom of God. And he mentions it in other places. I'll not die but live and declare the works of the eternal to all mankind. He'll be king of all Israel. The eternal has chastened me sore. I've been through a lot. But he has not given me over to death. So he was thankful for the mercy that God showed and not wiping him out for the sins that he committed on the earth while he was walking. And in spite of all those people who thought he deserved to die and were trying to destroy him, it didn't happen. God preserved him. Let him die a natural death. So God hadn't given him over to even physical death. Nor had he given him over to eternal death. And he's recognizing that here. Yes, he'd been paddled. He'd been chastened. God had created some penalties. But he had preserved him. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go into them, and I will praise the eternal. This gate of the eternal into which the righteousness shall enter, of which the righteous shall enter. Well, the gate into the kingdom of God, into the new Jerusalem. I will praise you, for you have heard me and are become my salvation. Is he talking about eternal salvation or just saving him from his enemies physically on the earth? Read on. The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. He's referring to Christ here. He knew that he had eternal salvation waiting for him. Let's go back to Ephesians 2 and read what Paul said. Verse 19 of Ephesians 2. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners. You're not Gentiles in the Spirit. But you're fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Now, he's writing here to Ephesus, which was not a, an Israelite area for the most part. They were of Gentile extraction in terms of physical blood. But he said, you're not strangers anymore. Your fellow citizens of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ or Emmanuel himself being the chief cornerstone, quoted from the Psalms, in whom all the building fitly framed together grows to a holy temple in the eternal, 
in whom you also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Now, God may indeed need a physical temple built. But the spiritual temple is head and shoulders far above a physical temple. The spiritual temple is the important thing. A physical temple may be used to fulfill some prophecies, to show an example to the world, but God's greatest concern is you and me as part of the spiritual temple here. Now, were those buildings, were built under Herbert Armstrong, beautiful buildings? Were they well built? They were gorgeous, wonderful buildings. About as nice as you can build on the earth. And they are gone. The church itself, the spiritual body, has been devastated, destroyed. Now what does he want to be greater than that which came before? Our spiritual condition. That's what has to be improved the most. Now, I do believe that the buildings that are built here at the end probably will be greater than those that were built under Herbert Armstrong. But the spiritual condition of us is by far and away the most important thing. Because even those physical buildings built by the latter temple will again be destroyed, more than likely and replaced by the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven. Now, whether they're preserved or not might be a matter of debate, and God knows. But what supersedes is going to be far, far more important. And the Spirit is the most important by far. So Christ, who was rejected by man, has become the headstone of the corner. This is the eternal's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. He knew that Christ was going to come to the earth. He knew what was going to happen. He knew he would be in the kingdom of God. This is the day which the eternal has made. He's speaking of the resurrection. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Because he's talking salvation here. Verse 21. That's the day he's referring to. That's the greatest day. Is the day... God's people are raised from the grave or from the earth and turned into immortality. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Won't we sing hosannas then and head off for the wedding supper? Save now, I beseech you, O Eternal. O Eternal, I beseech you, says it twice, send now prosperity, spiritual prosperity, It'll have physical prosperity as well. We've read all the prophecies, haven't we? So this section is beginning to move more and more toward that, to remind of those things that God is about to do. God is the eternal, which which showed us light, understanding, light. He is light, and he has given that light to us. Bind the sacrifice with cords, even to the horns of the altar. We need to tie ourselves to God's way. 
to be willing to, to be the sacrifice and to hang on to the altar that is before us. Now, this is speaking of physical animals to a physical altar, but the spiritual meaning cannot escape us, can it? You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. See, this is projecting attitude into the blessings that are about to come as well. Not frustrated, not discouraged, not depressed, not selfish, but looking outward at what God is doing. Oh, give thanks to the Eternal, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. I think that's enough for us for today.